May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. Amen. This Advent season, the first reading every Sunday will be from the book of Isaiah. We're specifically going to hear selections which deal with prophecies about Jesus, the Savior whom God had promised to send. As, as, and Isaiah, as I mentioned uh, last week in our first message in this series, lived about 700 years before Jesus. He was looking ahead to Jesus. And even though we live after Jesus during Advent, we place ourselves in the position of God's Old Testament people looking ahead to his appearance. I have a graphic in your service folders this morning that I want to explain to you before we get into our reading from Isaiah 11. It's placed uh, right where the text is, back a few pages from where we just were in the service, so you can see both the text and the graphic at once. Open up to that and I'll explain what you're looking at. There's a mountain range in the picture here. The lowest peak on the left rising toward the highest on the right side there. And on the left side there, you've got a person standing below that lowest peak. Imagine this person looking up at the range ahead. As he looks at these mountains all in a row, he might be able to see that there are multiple peaks ahead of him, but how many? Right, it's hard to see where one might end and the next begins. The peaks all meld together in his view from the ground. God's Old Testament prophets operated with a perspective like this. God gave them visions and words to share regarding the future, but those future events which they saw and then described would sometimes blend together, as if they were looking from the ground at mountain peaks trailing off into the distance. Events which would occur centuries apart seemed close to one another. One event, one mountain peak, might appear to be part of the peak behind it. That's what's going on as we look at today's reading from Isaiah. Now, there's a way in which this prophecy speaks about an event very close to Isaiah's time. Now, there's a way in which this prophecy speaks about something 700 years from Isaiah, Jesus' birth. There's a way in which this prophecy speaks about our own time, and there's a way in which this prophecy is speaking about eternity. This morning we're going to unfold uh, Isaiah's words, but first let's pray. Lord Jesus, open our ears to your word this morning. Let it work on our hearts and minds today and all throughout this Advent season to show us our need for you. And may we rejoice with your prophet Isaiah, who saw your day approaching and was comforted by that promise in every changing circumstance of life. Amen. Uh, verse 1 of our first reading, this reading from Isaiah, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. Maybe the first question that you ask as you're looking at this is, who's Jesse? How many of us remember this name? Jesse, if you don't remember him, you could be forgiven. He was not a particularly impactful character in the Old Testament. In fact, he doesn't really do anything on the pages of the Bible. He was a well-off rancher who lived in Bethlehem about 300 years before Isaiah. He had eight sons. And here's the reason we remember Jesse. His youngest son was David, David who fought Goliath, David who became king in Jerusalem, David who wrote at least 73 of the Psalms we have in our Bible. Jesse had been the head of this family, which God would elevate to the kingship over his people. In fact, when Isaiah wrote this prophecy, one of Jesse's 11 greats grandsons was sitting on the throne, a man named Hezekiah. So here's the particular comfort that this prophecy had for Isaiah, then, and the people in his own time. When Isaiah recorded this prophecy, the city of Jerusalem was being threatened by the Assyrian Empire. 
Sennacherib, king of Assyria, had sent his armies into Judah to force them to be his subjects. And as far as anyone could outwardly see, that's what was going to happen. Desperately trying to buy time, King Hezekiah, David's 11 greats grandson, took the gold that had covered the, the doors of the temple and sent it to Sennacherib. But Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, wanted more than gold. He wanted Judah to be his slaves. King Hezekiah was one of, we could say, the better kings of Judah. He wasn't the greatest. He wasn't a particularly effective political leader or military leader, but he had this one redeeming quality. He knew that the Lord alone was God. And so when this threat arose, he went to God's prophet Isaiah to hear what the one true God could tell him. And through Isaiah, God gave Hezekiah a promise. He would deliver them from Assyria. That's exactly what God did. He sent an angel into the imperial camp who killed 185,000 of the king's soldiers that night. The next morning, the Assyrians saw what had happened, immediately broke camp and returned to their country. And when they were back there in Assyria, one of Sennacherib's sons conspired with one of his brothers to murder their father, king of Assyria. After retreating in disgrace from Jerusalem, Sennacherib was assassinated by his sons in January of 681 BC. We know the exact year from sources outside the Bible that confirm to us that this is what happened. Part of Isaiah's prophecy regarding Assyria is given right before our text at the very end of chapter 10. It's something that's important to remember. The Bible wasn't written with these chapter and verse numbers, right? Isaiah was just giving one long prophecy. Uh, we put these chapter verse numbers in many, many, many years later to make it easier for us to navigate our Bibles. But what comes right before this prophecy then in chapter 10, at the end of chapter 10 there, is very much linked to what we're reading. And here's what it says, Isaiah 10 verse 33. See, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, will lop off the boughs with great power. The lofty trees will be felled. He will cut down the forest thickets with an axe. Paul Bunyan God, right, sweeping through the forest, chopping mighty trees with a single blow. The forest thickets there symbolize Assyria and her armies. And King Sennacherib himself, all these great trees reduced to stumps. And then our text starts with that verse I read. This picture of a little shoot growing up from the stump of Jesse. The royal family, Jesse's family, David's family, must have looked like a dead stump, right? The king was unable to stop this invading army. That's, that's what a king is there for, to protect his people. All that Hezekiah could do was send the temple gold as a desperate bribe in the face of these invaders. And even that hadn't worked. Isaiah brought this promise to the king. However powerless and defeated, however much of a stump you seem to be right now, Hezekiah, the Lord our God still cares for you. He will fight our battles. He will raise us up again. If you look at that graphic in your service folder, this is what we're seeing. Isaiah made this prophecy, and that's what he sees ahead. God's showing him ahead in the first peak of this prophecy. Assyria's lofty trees chopped down. Judah's little stump revitalized. But Isaiah would come to realize that this prophecy was not completely fulfilled in his time. See, we look ahead in our reading and we see how God describes to Isaiah this branch and shoot that will come up from the royal family's stump. This is going to be a just and good king, God says, right? Not only is he going to protect Jerusalem, Judah from Assyria, he's going to raise up empowered by God's spirit and a new king, a good king who will defend the powerless. Well, Isaiah got to see 
the next king. Right, a king, the next king. Hezekiah wasn't this king. He couldn't defend the powerless. He was sending the temple gold off for a bribe. Would it be the next king? Well, the king who came after Hezekiah, his son Manasseh, was not a king like that, no. Manasseh was an evil man. Here's how his rule is described in 2 Chronicles 33. In the Lord's temple, Manasseh built altars for the stars. He sacrificed his children in fire. He practiced divination and witchcraft. He consulted mediums and spiritists. Additionally, although we don't have this recorded in the Bible, it's thought that Manasseh had Isaiah executed. And after Manasseh, his son Amon, likewise, Second Chronicles tells us, followed completely the ways of his father. Amon was so hated by the people who were so fed up with everything they had suffered under his father that they revolted and assassinated Amon. So as we read Isaiah's prophecy here, we see that the king that he saw coming from Jesse's line was not one that he would see coming in his lifetime. Not a good king. Not a king that could defend the powerless. Isaiah only had his ground-level view of those mountain peaks ahead of him, but you and I have a different perspective on Isaiah's prophecies, on all Old Testament prophecy, in fact. In that graphic in your folders there, there's a second person standing on that third mountaintop. Think about the difference in perspective that this person has compared to the one who's on the ground. This second person who's standing in and on the mountains can see the peaks below him as distinct and separate. That's the position which you and I have from which we can contemplate God's Old Testament prophecies. Right? We can see the ways in which the prophets spoke about, about events that would take place in their time, in their near future, Right, that first peak. But all throughout the Old Testament prophets, over and over, we find that mixed in with those are prophecies pointing ahead further to something greater than their immediate context. Right? Isaiah's promise here that God will protect them from Assyria is not fully borne out when the next king proves to not be the good, powerful, just king that God promises here. There's a promise elsewhere in scripture given directly to David, 2 Samuel 7, that his son would build a temple. Solomon did that, but that temple would be knocked down in 586 BC. God said that it would be a, a temple forever. Ezekiel had a vision of the exiles returning to Jerusalem, and that was borne out, yes, but it had a greater fulfillment as we look ahead into the New Testament to see the church. All these prophecies, all these prophets saw their prophecies fulfilled in some ways in the Old Testament era. But here's the important point. Here's what we see from our position in history. All of them saw a greater fulfillment in the coming of Jesus. That's the mountaintop where you and I stand. The true root of Jesse has come. Jesus is this king who judges, as Isaiah describes here, not according to what he sees or what he hears, but according to the heart. That's what Jesus showed all throughout his ministry as he looked past people's words and deeds to see their hearts. And verse 3 here says that Jesus delights in the fear of the Lord. That phrase, fear of the Lord, is an Old Testament phrase that describes what the New Testament simply calls faith. Right? Fear of the Lord is is faith. Theologians have explained the difference between what we usually think of as fear, right, and this kind of fear, fear of the Lord, by labeling one servile fear and the other filial fear. Servile fear is the dread and terror that someone, a servant, might feel toward a cruel and exacting master. Filial fear 
is the willing, loving obedience and respect that a child shows to their parent. That fear, that kind of fear, that's faith. Right? It's being in a correct relationship with God, he our father, we his children, and trusting therefore that he knows best that he will keep his promises. And it's that filial fear, that faith that Jesus can find in human hearts. It's what he delights in. Isaiah's prophecy points ahead past his own time to the Messiah who was coming. Jesus, the Messiah, would be the king who ruled rightly. He is the king who protects the defenseless and the powerless. Standing on our mountain peak in the New Testament era, we see more clearly than Isaiah who Jesus is and what he came to do. For us, poor before God and needy of righteousness, Jesus came to earth to live a perfect human life. And in grace, he credits us with that perfect life he lived. He credits us with the innocent death he died. And so when he judges you needy ones, when he gives decisions for you poor, he's proclaiming what it was that he spoke from the cross. It is finished. You are forgiven. Your sins are forgotten. They're remembered no more. But there's still more to this prophecy. Verses 6 to 9 describe something that I don't think any of you would say you've been able to see in this life. Isaiah describes when the root of Jesse, when this true root of Jesse takes his throne, he will establish such a thorough peace in the world that even wild predator animals will not harm domestic livestock. Instead, they're all going to eat the same feed together. They're going to lie down with one another in peace. One of the things that we don't have answered for us in the Bible is what it was that animals ate in the Garden of Eden before the fall into sin. A lot of people, though, have guessed that all animals were herbivores before sin entered the world. And if so, Isaiah is depicting for us the Messiah King restoring the perfection of Eden where he rules, returning the world to what it once was. Again, if you look at your bulletin graphic, there's one peak ahead of us still. That's Jesus coming again, the end of the world. That's being pictured here. When Jesus returns, the scriptures tell us that he will remake this world. He will raise us to imperishable life, to bodies that won't wear out or give up. In a world that doesn't groan under sin's curse, a world without death and destruction, that's what's pictured here. But this is another part of Isaiah's prophecy that will be fulfilled in two ways. Jesus will recreate this world when he returns. He will banish death and harm in the way that this text pictures. But he's also bringing this kind of peace into our world right now. He's doing it here, today, this morning, in this building. Right? The picture given here of predators and prey lying down together is a picture of the Christian church. We humans were not made for conflict and division. You were not made to battle other humans. You were made to live in peace and harmony. But our sin has ruined God's design. Our sin leads us to divide, to hate, to scorn, to mock, to despise. But here, here, in the church, God is undoing that. Here, in the church, God restores his intended creation. Whichever of these animals best describes you out there in the world, lion or lamb, bear or cow, elephant or donkey, in here you get fed the same food. In here Jesus brings a peace that bridges generations, ethnicities, political parties, different temperaments. In here we're brothers and sisters of one another and of Jesus our Savior. The peace Jesus brings is a not yet 
and an already peace. We still sin against God. We still hurt one another with thoughts, words, and deeds. In the Advent season, we recognize that and plead, Lord, have mercy. We sing songs like the one we heard just before the message from verse 4 there. We ever seek, yet unfulfilled remain. Open to us the pathway of your peace. This is Advent. It's a not yet and an already season. Christ, our Savior, has come, yet we long for his coming again. So here we are, for now, then in this time between Christ's advents, we gather out of the world to feast with brothers and sisters at our King's banquet of forgiveness. Amen.